Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here today. So super happy to have guests with us. Uh, you're taking, uh, you're, you're helping our numbers be boosted today. We got a few folks that uh, walked outside in the cold, literally blew them back in the door. I'm sure, and uh, but I know that there will be some, especially of our. Uh, uh, of our elderly and, and some others that have uh, health conditions and what have you that are going to stay in today that are watching with us online. Welcome to them as well. What a privilege it is to be here uh, with you and for you to be here with me in the presence of the Lord. This is absolutely the best thing in the world, the best way to start the week. And we get to continue our theme for this year, the theme of restore, which I hope and trust is going to be a great blessing to us all. Now, getting my voice in order here. And get my microphone in order here. I wonder if you paid attention to that song that we just sang. That's an old song. I didn't look at the date when it was written, but I know that uh, I have uh, been singing it. I heard it sung all my life. Uh, my first year of preaching way back in the 90s, I actually turned it into a sermon. I've still got those notes, those uh, notes in my folder somewhere I could pull out if I wanted to, but I really don't think I would need the notes anymore. But uh, I wonder where you are in the process of, of, of that song. In your process of spiritual growth, I wonder where you are in life. And, and probably several of us in the auditorium today are in maybe different places. Um, I wonder how many of us would be bold enough to say that, that you're living right now the none of self and all of thee kind of life. Probably not many. My hope is that most of us in the room would, would, would very genuinely say that it's less of self and more of thee, at least we're at that place in the song in, in our lives. Uh, probably some would say that, you know, there's more of self and less of thee to God. And, and, I, and you know that's not right, uh, but you haven't yet found the, the secret to finding the strength to figure out how to move into that next verse, so to speak. Well, I probably won't mention the song again in this sermon because I'll probably just get caught up in the rest of the things I'm going to say. But I just want you to think about it as we do go through our thoughts this morning. This morning we're talking about restoration, the second in this series, and asking the question, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be faithful? Because salvation is conditioned upon our faithfulness. We find ourselves restored to God as sons and daughters in good standing, upon condition to faithfully obeying the gospel, culminating in our being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. We continue to be in a saved state as we live our lives faithful to Jesus. It always remains our free will option if we choose to turn our backs on Jesus, either in unbelief, outright unbelief, we can decide we just don't believe and trust in Him anymore, or maybe we embrace some sin that 
His word tells us that we, we cannot live in that, and maybe we decide we love the sin more than we love God, so we embrace that sin. And in either case, we have turned away from being faithful and loyal to Jesus. And, well, that, that means that, that, you've, that you're lost. You've fallen from grace. And so faithfulness being the condition upon which God favors us with his grace. He gives his grace to the faithful. That being the case, one of maybe one of the most important lessons that I could ever teach, one of the most important subjects, doctrinal subjects in the Bible is to ask that question. What does it mean to be faithful? Now I want us to start <clears throat> with Psalm 51. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalm 51, which has been our scripture reading last week and this week. And uh, this is one of my favorite psalms, if not my favorite. And uh, it is a somewhat mis mis uh, uh, misunderstood psalm sometimes. Um, sometimes people focus on some of the poetic statements in it too much in one direction or another. And if you focus on too much, I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm just saying that for the sake of y'all that may have a hang-up with Psalm 51 and think if a preacher's going to preach Psalm 51, he's got to make sure he talks about that conceived in iniquity or born in sin thing. I'm not even going to mention it. I don't care. It's poetry. What I want us to do is read Psalm 51 together, and I want you to hear the, the inspired words of King David after he has hit his rock bottom. All right? Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David begins this prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You ever felt some of these things that David expresses? Can't get away from your past, really. Not in this life. All of us, I would expect, after you've come to a certain point in life, man, you're fully devoted to Jesus. I hope that that's true. But every single day, there may be mistakes that you've made, sins that you've committed that at least for a few minutes every day, you're going to have to sit and suffer in. That's me. That's definitely me. I don't know about you. David says that his he acknowledges this transgression. His sin is always before him, his face. He says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned. And again, remember that this is a poetic prayer. He is not actually saying that he didn't sin against Uriah and he didn't sin against Bathsheba and didn't sin against all the people of Israel who were dependent upon his kingly example of righteousness, which he destroyed. But he's saying ultimately the truth. And that is that all sin is primarily directed against God. So when you've sinned against that person that you thought really deserved it, God feels it as an attack against himself. All right? David recognizes this. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, God, if you call me to account for this sin, and he did through the prophet Nathan, if you hold me accountable, if you punish me for this, if you rebuke me for this, you're right. God, I know you're right. I'm in the wrong. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David just means he doesn't remember a time when he wasn't plagued with temptations to sin. How about you? I don't either. It's human nature in this fallen world. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Now, David already in his contrition knows the, the grace of God enough to recognize that God has forgiven. And in fact, Nathan pronounced his forgiveness. Whenever he, when Nathan the prophet said to David, you're the man. I always remember it in the King James. Thou art the man. I don't know why, but it stuck in my mind. Probably hearing it in childhood, preached from the KJV growing up. But I hear that. And David repented. And Nathan told him, your sin's been forgiven. He knew he was forgiven. But it didn't mean that he didn't need to express himself before God in this way. And he did. And he's certain that God is going to work in his life to heal him, to fix it somehow. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, which was an herb maybe related to the European herb called hyssop that's kind of minty, but it was used in, in ancient Israelite purification rites, part of the tabernacle and temple worship and the services of the priesthood. So that's what he's referring to. And, and again, this, this means that David has every intention to go through the proper processes according to the law of Moses to make things right with God. In other words, when we get to the end of Psalm 51, he's not saying he's not going to offer sacrifices. He's saying that the mere offering of sacrifices that does not come from a contrite heart is unacceptable to God. You see? Now continuing. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Again, this language used throughout the Scripture like the books in heaven recording all of our thoughts and words and deeds. And David is asking, proverbially speaking, for God to go into the books and to take a wet sponge and to just blot out that ink that records the evil things that he has done. He's saying, remove them from the books, please. I know a lot of Christians are worried about Judgment Day. Because you know that you're faithful to Jesus and you trust that you'll be saved. But you're afraid of that moment when you stand before the throne of Christ and he opens the books and starts listing off in front of everybody you've ever known everything you've ever done. It's not going to happen. So don't fear it. Because if you are in Christ and faithful, your sins have been blotted out. As another psalm says, they've been removed from you as far as east is from west. Which, by the way, is infinite. East and west go on forever on this earth forever. You can keep going east forever, literally, and so on. And so when, when a Christian stands before the judgment seat of Christ and we're judged according to our works, if we've been faithful, the only works that are still on the books are the good ones. Does that make sense? That, that's what Scripture teaches. So when you hear that, brothers and sisters, what does that do to your spirit? What does that do to your heart? What does that make you think about your God who even though you deserve it above what you can even understand, I say that to all of us, even though we deserve 
to be put to shame in the presence of God. We deserve to be put to shame in the presence of God because of the things that we've done. But he loves us enough that he has created a way that he can avoid doing that. He doesn't want to put you to shame before those that you love, even before his own face. That's how good he is, beyond good. I love him. I hope you do too. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, oh God. I love the fact that we sing this song. And renew a steadfast spirit, a new, renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall now show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings, he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Now, of course, you remember David is writing in the context of the law of Moses under which he lived. And we, we don't live under the law of Moses today. We're not going to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a bull for our sins. Thank God we don't have to do that because the bull was simply a type of which Christ is the antitype, a, a shadow of which Christ is the true light. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the true and acceptable sacrificial offering to God on our behalf. And so what we do is we come to Psalm 51, and, and we try to learn from this inspired prayer of contrition, this inspired prayer for restoration. We try to learn what it looks like on the inside to be the kind of person that God forgives. Did you hear that? We study Psalm 51 in light of the cross of Christ to try to understand what it is on the inside to be the kind of person God will forgive. Right? That's what we do with Psalm 51. And it teaches us precisely that. It is to realize that we have sinned grievously against God. It is to choose to be in a place where we do not run from our past, but we let it be in front of our faces all the time to remind us of what great things Christ has done for us. Amen? I hope. What a blessed psalm this is. Let's kind of uh, deconstruct it a little bit here. King David, the writer of the psalm by inspiration, had failed in his responsibilities. He had indulged his lusts. He had acted on lust. He had committed adultery. By the way, a capital offense under the law. He had tried to avoid the consequences. And in the process of doing that, he had committed murder. He had murdered an innocent man, and not only an innocent man, but one of his most 
loyal subjects, a man who risked his life every day for King David. That's who he murdered. But he repented. And he was restored. So what does that say about you? Have you failed in your responsibilities? Have you indulged lusts? Have you acted on them? Have you committed adultery? I hope most of us haven't, literally. But I imagine somebody has that's listening. Have you tried to avoid the consequences of your sins? Have you committed murder? I don't know. I haven't. Maybe you have. Not literally, but I would draw your attention to the Sermon on the Mount and tell you that if you're not familiar with what Jesus says there, he's a whole lot more concerned with your motives than he is with what you actually do. Sometimes the only reason you haven't committed murder is because you were too cowardly to do it. Is that not true? All right? So when God says that, when Jesus says whoever is angry with his brother without cause is guilty of murder according to the, the ideals of God because the same process that leads to murder you're indulging in your heart and just because you're too afraid of the consequences you don't do it, does that make you less of a sinner? That's what scripture would lead you to ask the question. Now I beg you don't do it. I would rather you not murder me. <laughs> I'd rather you want to and not than for you to go through with it. Amen. All right, but it would be better if we didn't want to. Okay? Have you tried to avoid the consequences of your sins? Have you committed murder, literally or proverbially? The question is, can God restore you? And, and, and I'm not belittling David, nor am I saying that he was the chief of sinners or the worst that ever lived. Paul would disagree with that statement. Paul says he was the worst sinner that ever lived, and I think he was worse than David, even though David did horrible things. But Paul says, in essence, the same thing that David does. He says God forgave him. David is forgiven by God. Paul is forgiven by God. Saul of Tarsus, who murdered Christians in the multiples, was forgiven by God upon condition of his repentance. And the point of this, brothers and sisters, is I do not want to hear anyone who understands anything of the gospel of, the gospel of Jesus Christ ever to say, God can't forgive me, I'm just too bad. Because it's not true. It's a lie of the devil and do not believe it and don't say it and don't spread it and don't support it and rebuke it every time you hear it. It is blasphemy against the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the most powerful cleansing agent in the whole of the universe. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 beginning in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice what he says. Resist him, firm in your faith. Do you think it's possible to resist Satan effectively? Scripture sure teaches that it is. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. Notice how I've underlined this. God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. This is what God will do, he's promised. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Can God save you? Can God fix you? Can God heal you? Can God forgive you? Oh, absolutely, it's easy for him because the price has been paid on the cross of Calvary. 
And he's just to do it. Glory to God. I love him so much. And I hope that you do too. Psalm 51 in restoration. There's seven, seven principles of restoration that I glean from Psalm 51. I, whenever I'm reading a passage and trying to break it down into teachable steps or something like that, uh, it doesn't surprise me when I find sevens repeated all through Scripture. But as I glean Psalm 51, I find these seven things that were involved in David's process of being restored by God into his proper place as an Israelite in good standing. The same thing would apply to us today in being restored as Christians in good standing if we've not been living faithfully to Jesus. Prayer. Now, again, this is for baptized believers. We talked about last week restoration into good standing with God for a person that's outside of covenant relationship with Christ is to obey the gospel, culminating in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But we're talking about now the restoration of a believer who has fallen away from the grace of God, who has abandoned faithfulness in some way for some period of time. And so the baptized believer who has fallen away returns through prayer. And by confessing their sins in prayer, just as David did in Psalm 51, God forgives. That's what he's promised to do. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 10. But it requires corrected thoughts and motives because repentance is essential to God's forgiveness. Acts 17, 30 and 31. God absolutely requires repentance. Now, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so it's a change on the inside. It's a heart change. It's a recognition that I have not been thinking right and it has resulted in sin and now I've got to get myself back under the word of God. I've got to get myself back thinking with a mindset of scripture so that I won't. That's, what, that's as simple as it is, man. I've got to quit thinking in any other way, whether it's selfish or whether it's the way my friends are trying to lead me to think or whether it's the worldview that I live in and the nation that I live in or whatever it is that has misguided my thinking. It all comes from Satan. Repentance means I, I've got to stop letting that influence in. I've got to start letting the influence of God's word in so that I will think like God's word teaches me to think and then I'll do it. That's repentance. That's what it means. Repentance leads to obedience and if it doesn't lead to obedience, it is not repentance. Let it sink in. Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Jesus as a man could not have lived sinlessly were it not for the support of the Holy Spirit. Period. You, as a follower of Jesus, will never overcome the sins in your life without the help of the Holy Spirit. It'll never happen because you're just not good enough. But when you do turn to the Holy Spirit in prayer, being guided by his word, asking for his providence, his help, his blessings in your daily life, you have renewed joy. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 4 begins, the fruit of the Spirit is love, number one, love, second in the list, joy, joy. If you find yourself living life in depression, I've had long seasons of depression. I've been very transparent about that. And so I'm going to just step on my own foot and tell you, if you find yourself consistently living in a state of depression, a state of negativity and down upon yourself, it is because you are not following the Holy Spirit as you should. If you follow the Holy Spirit as you should, I'm not telling you it's going to be a miracle cure overnight, but I'm telling you if you dedicate yourself to diligently and faithfully following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you will overcome depression. 
You will overcome negativity. You will overcome this self-crushing criticism that we are all so prone to apply to ourselves in our minds in quiet and silent solitude. And you will learn to experience true and lasting joy. That's just what Scripture teaches, brothers and sisters. I'm just telling what the Bible says. And when you have the joy of your salvation that has been restored, nobody will be able to get you to shut up about the Word of God. And you're going to be in worship every time the doors of the church building are open. Not only so, but you're going to get on your knees Monday through Saturday, and you're going to worship God on your own because he deserves it. And it's a sin not to give it to him because he's earned it many, many thousands of times over. And brothers and sisters, you're going to maintain. This is 1 John. We talked about last week. You're going to maintain an ongoing state of contrition. That's simply what a person that is seeking restoration is going to do. Notice Revelation 2 verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's the promise of Jesus. 1 John 5 and verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. So again, I, I want to draw your attention back to the key, faithfulness. What David is demonstrating in Psalm 51 is a return to faithfulness. That's what Psalm 51 is. And whenever a Christian has fallen from grace by turning to the world, by following Satan selfishly in some way or another, returning to Christ means returning to faithfulness. And restoration is conditioned upon that return to faithfulness. Now listen. It is not a return to perfection because you've never been there. You can't return to that. You can aim for that. And that is the aim of following Jesus. Perfection, I'll say that again. But restoration is returning to faithfulness. It is returning to the attempt, to the effort to obey Christ in everything. So again, that question, what is faithfulness? Again, let's look at King David and you and me. We have the same God. We have the same human nature. King David demonstrated in his worst moments, identifying a sin that he wanted to commit, then he committed it, then he plotted to cover it up. Brothers and sisters, that cannot be done in faith. Now, please, just for a moment, stop and let it sink in. Romans 14 gives us this bottom line. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever we think, say, or do that is not drawn from our faith in Jesus Christ is sin. All right? The Bible has drawn those lines very clearly. What David did cannot be done in faith. And so if you know, what, what makes a Christian fall away? Is it making a mistake? No, we all make mistakes. Notice you and me. We all stumble in many ways. James 3 and verse 2, as we walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. And we all make mistakes of weakness, never risking condemnation. Do you understand that? We all fall short in many ways. It's not necessarily a violation of covenant. Whoops, I said something I shouldn't have said, stupid me. I, there's, I'm, I'm still not what I ought to be on the inside. And therefore, from the treasure of my heart, sometimes come curses. That doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It doesn't mean I've rebelled against God. It means I'm weak. But if you identify sin, I'm not talking about Satan sneaks up on, on you in a moment of weakness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you identify a course of action that is sinful and you know it. 
And you decide, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. And then you do it. And then you try not to get caught. Raise your hand if you can't relate to that. I just wanted to see if, there, if I needed to preach on lying next week because there's nobody old enough to understand what I'm talking about that doesn't know what that's like. Of course you know what that's like. And brothers and sisters, that's what it means to fall away because you can't do that in faith. It's not a moment of weakness. It is purposeful rebellion against God. It is knowing what's right and choosing not to do it. And brothers and sisters, if you're doing that, you need restoration. You need to be restored because you've broken the covenant. What David did was not just a mistake of weakness. It was willful rebellion. And considering how well David understood the law of God, it was especially inexcusable, which, again, highlights the beautiful grace of God in such a wonderful way. So we ask the question here, does it really matter? I mean, after all, we're all just sinners saved by grace, right? Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Oftentimes in Christian circles, that's the way people treat the grace of God, as if it's a light and little thing. You need to know what the Word of God says, though. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are very regularly quoted in Christendom. It teaches us that by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But verse 10 is much more rarely quoted. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. You see, Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's easy to quote. The world loves to hear that. Instructing us or teaching us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Don't preach cheap grace. Don't believe in cheap grace. Grace is the most costly force that has ever been earned in the world. It was earned at the price of the lifeblood of the Son of God. Grace will never leave you in sin at peace. It will always charge you to get up and once again return to the fold of God to obey Him as perfectly as you possibly can. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. We very often look at this passage and focus on what it teaches about baptism. But I want you to focus on what it teaches about sin and its power over our lives as baptized believers. Listen, what shall we say then? Paul begins Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see what Paul says there? Don't you understand what baptism did? You died. Your old sinful man was buried. How can you keep on living in sin willfully? Oh, no, that didn't work. Later in the passage, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Notice, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If any preacher or teacher ever tells you that sin is inevitable, it's false doctrine. It is not true. Not for the baptized believer. It is not true. Scripture very plainly teaches that we, as baptized believers, who have the Holy Spirit, it is never inevitable that we're going to sin. We have been released from the power of sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We've been set free unto righteousness. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
So, listen, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This passage teaches us that we have been radically set free from the power of sin. This makes it all the worse when we follow in the footsteps of David. I know more about God than King David did. And so do you. So do you. So, what does that mean for us? Paul writes again now in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is the exodus that he's talking about. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In other words, everything that God was given through the law were types and shadows and prophecies and symbols that were leading to the fulfillment of Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they uh, were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Notice this, who will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, every time you sin to one degree or another it is willful because God was there and you didn't take his hand. Now tell me that's not true. It's just as true as it can be. So let's not look at the world and blame the world. Let's not look at the devil and blame the devil. Let's not look at our culture, the worldview you were raised in, the way that you were parented, or any of those things. Don't you look at a single one of those things and say it's not my fault that I sin. It is 110% your fault when you sin. And it is nobody else's fault. And it is a direct attack against God himself. That's what Psalm 51 teaches. Do we even understand sin today in 2023 in the church? I don't know. I wonder if we do. I hope we do. I know that many of us do. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, one of the most straightforward commandments about sin in the whole Bible. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? Unless you're David and King and, and Prophet Nathan is standing in front of you, which in a sense may be happening to some of us today. So the question is, what is faithfulness? Well, faith is belief that trusts enough to strive to do what God commands. That's faith. 
Obedience is a part of faith. It's not something in addition to faith. Real faith obeys. That's all there is to it. And so faithfulness is continuing in faith. So, so faithfulness is continuing to believe God enough to trust him to do, or at least to strive with all that we have to do what he's commanded us to do. That's faith and that's faithfulness. If that's not what you're doing in life, then you're not faithful. Can, can I make that even clearer? If you are faithful to Jesus, this is what it looks like. You love him. You believe. You trust him. You know his word is truth. You're seeking through study, prayerful study to understand it and apply. Listen now, please listen, to 100% perfectly apply everything it says to every thought that you think so that every word that comes out of your mouth so that everything your hand finds to do will be loyal to Jesus and righteous 100%. That's faithfulness. And you will be frustrated every day because you will be constantly attacked by Satan and his forces and you will fall and you will fail and you will struggle and sometimes it's going to be especially tough but brothers and sisters, that's what faithfulness is. And if that's not a description of your life, I just want you to understand, Jesus wants you to understand, you are not faithful. You're not faithful if you're not striving for Perfection, a perfection you'll never reach on your own, but it is yours to grasp and to make your aim. To abandon it is to fall from grace. And so restoration means these simple things. It means you have restored your faithful obedience to God's word and are aiming at total obedience, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God. You should not fear. All is well, even if you stumble, as we all do in many ways. James 3. You have been freed from sin's power, Romans 6. You really can live righteously if you will aim for his perfect will. I didn't say perfectly. I said righteously. And everybody will know it. Number four. All this is because of his grace upon your repentance. No one who fails to aim at perfection, has truly yet repented. I want you to let that statement sink in. And as we come to the point in this sermon where the invitation is going to be yours, I ask you to really, really, really think about where you are in relationship to God. Think about what God has done for you. Think about your sins. Think about His grace. And ask yourself the honest question, am I faithful to Jesus? The answer is yes. May God bless you to stay the course. Please, I need your example. If the answer is no, maybe it's a private matter. You can pray to God right now and be restored and forgiven. You've got to change the mind. You've got to have the intention that you're going to proceed forward and strive to learn God's will and obey it. You've got, you got to do that. That's what it means to return to faithfulness. Maybe it is known that you've not followed Jesus. The front pews are open. You can be restored today. This morning, if you need to be baptized into Christ, you need the prayers of this church. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.